Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number, if I take a look here, show number 31. So we have today's show, and we have one more show after this, and then we will be done for the semester. Today, what we're going to be doing is talking about something called qualifying the property uh, for the loan. Uh, in previous chapters, we discussed some things such as, you know, during the semester, you know, different types of loan programs. And then we finally got to the point where we were talking about when a person is getting ready to apply for a loan, either for the purposes of refinancing a property or the purposes of purchasing a property, there's two main areas that they have to qualify for or that needs to be qualified. And one was the individual themselves. And so what we discussed there was we talked about the fact that we had to take a look at the person's or the individual's income, how much money they made, how reliable it was, how stable it was. In other words, how much we could count on it. And we talked about different sources of income for the individual. Uh, the way I usually like to look at that is talking about what is their capacity to be able to make the payments on the loan. The second thing we talked about, and I like to kind of put a title on this, called their willingness to pay the loan, and that usually is tied back to their credit rating. So consequently, uh, when you apply for a loan, one of the things that the uh, lender is going to require you to do is to submit something or do something called a credit report to uh, make sure that you have been paying your bills on time, to take a look at how how you currently use credit. Are you uh, Do you normally make your payments on time? Um, do you have too much? In other words, do you have 10, 20, 30 credit cards where before you know it, you could end up uh, owing you know, anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 just by using them? Uh, so that was the other area. The second area when you're getting a loan on real estate is what we call qualifying the property. Now, I kind of want to preface this by saying that one of the things, and really emphasize this, one of the things that the lenders do not want to do most of the time in any circumstances, is end up with your house. They really don't want to do that. Uh, they don't want to have to take your property back. Uh, they don't want to go through the foreclosure process. They don't want to do this. So this is sort of like a last-ditch effort. It's not like the lender's making you the loan saying, oh, by the way, if you don't make payments on it, I can take the property back. They really don't want to do this. But what they do do is they want to make sure that what the amount of money that they're going to lend on the property that the property is worth that much and that in the event of a foreclosure or that they take the property back, that they could sell it and get their money back. So it actually ends up being security for the loan, if you will. It's what you're pledging for the loan. So what we're going to be doing is talking about qualifying the property. And in order to do that, we'll be talking about something called real estate appraisal. And, uh, you know, this topic of real estate appraisal could, uh, you know, we have many, many courses or have courses on this in which we have a basic uh, introduction course, then there's an advanced course. Uh, so it's a very, if you will, complex topic. Uh, it also involves, you know, and when we talk about real estate, we're going to be talking specifically about residential real estate. We're not going to be talking about commercial or industrial property or warehouse property. In fact, in the real estate uh, industry, real estate appraisers, typically, a lot of them will say, you know, all I do is residential property. It takes all my time and effort to really understand that market well enough that I can do appraisals in a reasonable period of time and turn those around at a reasonable cost so consequently people will choose me when they want to appraise property. 
Conversely, when you're talking about other types, such as warehouses, office buildings, shopping centers, uh, special types of property, uh, such as churches, things like that, those things take a different set of skills. They take a, a, a different level or type of appraiser. That is not what we're talking about today, but those are topics that would be talked about, say, for example, in, in an advanced real estate course. So what I'm going to be doing as usual, I'll be bouncing back and forth between the document camera and the plasma screen and starting out by just reviewing some things that uh, you'll see in your textbook and while we'll be discussing them. So what I want to do is move over here to my old friendly uh, document camera. One of the things, again, why I highlight these is because I think it's important that, you know, the author has taken uh, some time to emphasize some things, and I think it's really important that we take a look at it. Uh, here it says, qualifying the property involves an analysis, uh, analysis of its many features to determine whether it has sufficient value to serve as collateral for, real estate, for a real estate loan and whether its value can be expected to remain stable in the months and the years to come. So essentially when we do uh, uh, an appraisal on a piece of property, we are looking at what is the value of that property today, and we'll talk about it in more detail, you know, based on where the property is located in its neighborhood uh, and based on the condition of the property, is there a reasonable expectation that that, for example, neighborhood is going to stay stable or get better? Are the surrounding houses of the same quality? Are they stable or getting better? Uh, and the property itself, is, is it old? Is it, is it updated and new where, uh, you know, where there's a reasonable, reasonable expectation that it's going to stay in good condition for, say, the next 15, 20, 30 years? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at not only today but in the future because, for example, if we have to go and foreclose on the property, it may not necessarily be in that first year. It may be three, four, five, six, ten years later that it has to be foreclosed on. So that's why the lender wants to know that. Going on from there... I think this is important, too, that we emphasize this because of today, uh, especially in today's market, you know, it says lenders do not make loans in anticipation of foreclosure. Again, they do not want to foreclose on your property. You know, lenders just kind of want to lend you the money, sit back, take it easy, and just collect a check from you. They really do not want to have to go over there and fix the pool and clean and mow the lawn and all that. They don't want to do that. So anyway, it says they make loans in anticipation of being repaid in a timely manner. Every underwriting decision is based on this premise. Regardless of whether the borrower is a, has sterling credit or not, the property will serve as security for the debt. A wise lender will make certain before extending a loan that there is enough value in the property to protect its investment. Okay, so that's very, very critical that we understand that when we're working with uh, with, uh, put with the properties. A couple other things that I want to emphasize here, um, and, and, you know, there's been more emphasis placed on the quality and the knowledge and the expertise of a real estate appraiser in the last number of years, and it continues to happen. In fact, in the year 2008, I believe there's going to be new additional requirements for anybody that wants to become a real estate appraiser, there's going to be new additional courses. And the reason why is that we really heavily depend upon these real estate appraisers to make this real estate market go. I mean, when you stop and think about the fact that most people don't have the money to buy the house cash, they're borrowing the money, 
The people that are making the loans or the underwriting decisions are not going out and looking at the property. They're sitting in some office, maybe in San Francisco, maybe back in New York, maybe in Texas, who knows where, and they're making a decision. And that decision is based on that, that expertise that that appraiser has. You know, there's nobody else that can provide that kind of knowledge and that kind of expertise. And this whole industry, a lot of it is dependent upon that knowledge of that appraiser. They're so key to these transactions. So keep in mind that there is a lot of emphasis placed on the fact of continuing to increase the requirements for appraisers within the industry. That's why, for example, to be a licensed real estate appraiser in California, you, to sign off your own appraisals, you have to have over 2,000 hours worth of appraisal experience under the guidance of a real estate appraiser. You just cannot go out and hang your shingle out and say, I'm a real estate appraiser. You also are required to take a lot of coursework before you actually can do that. So it's really important. Now, going from there, I just wanted to, I saw a couple other things that I wanted to emphasize in here. It says uh, both the state and the federal law, uh, state and federal law appraisers are required to provide an unbiased and independent analysis of the property. Appraisers are required to adhere to what we call the uniform standards of professional appraisal practice. It's called USPAP. You'll hear that term used all the time, USPAP. So, in other words, it's a set of guidelines that they have to follow, must follow. And carrying out each appraisal, the USPAP applies to all licensed and certified appraisers as well as to users of appraisals. goes on from there. It says the seller and the buyer or their agents are not the appraiser's client, Okay, which is sort of strange. You know, when you think about it, you know, the seller may be paying for the appraisal. The buyer may be paying for the appraisal. If the purpose of the appraisal is to get a loan, either to refinance or to purchase a property, the client of the appraisal is the bank. Even so, the buyer or the person getting the loan is going to pay for the appraisal. So that's why it says the seller, buyer, or their agents are not the appraiser's clients. The lender is the primary client of the appraiser. The USPAP makes it very clear that the appraiser is expected to safeguard the primary lender the investors of the secondary market, and the federal insurance funds. That's their job. And they take a lot of heat over that uh, because, you know, a lot of times, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the, uh, as we go along, a lot of times what happens is, is that appraisers primarily get their business, most of their business, especially in the residential area. They primarily get their business from lenders. What happens is, is that appraisers normally are in, are in fairly constant contact with the various lending institutions they're providing to them. You know, that's where, you know, the lending institutions is who the appraiser provides their resume to, maybe samples of appraisals that they've done. The appraisers are, are the uh, lenders, mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, are normally the people that have a list of appraisers that they call in the event to make the loan. In other words, to get the appraisal for the loan that they're making. Uh, there's a lot of pressure many times put on the appraiser to make the appraisal come back and justify the price that the client wants or the amount of money that the person wants to borrow. So it's really kind of interesting. The appraiser many times has to take a look at that and say, you know, if you're trying to pressure me into changing my appraisal or coming up with a value that I can't justify, I'm sorry. I think maybe what you need to do is go find another appraiser. But they are under, it's kind of a lot of pressure because they're getting their loans 
or they're getting their business from the lenders, but at the same time, the lenders are turning around and saying, can't you get the price up a little bit more so we can make the loan go through? There's a lot of pressure uh, for appraisers to be under. Now, going on from there, just so we have an understanding of, of what, once we do this appraisal, what figure is used to lend the money on? They have a little example here that I want to point out. Uh, it says, um, let me see if I get this right. Let me see if I can uh, get this. It says, uh, right here is the example. What happens is when the appraiser goes out, by the way, one of the things that I want to emphasize, when the appraiser nowadays goes out to appraise the property, one of the things that they normally will have a copy of with them is the purchase offer, accepted purchase offer from the uh, real estate agent. So in other words, when you do that negotiation back and forth between making an offer, a counteroffer, making another offer, a counteroffer, and you finally settle on a price, that document is also given to the appraiser. Now, the appraiser is then well aware of what the sales price of the house happens to be. They're well aware of that. They're also aware of all the terms, all the conditions, what kinds of loans maybe that are going to be involved, what's going to be sold with the property. In other words, is, 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 the, is the seller going to help finance? All of that stuff is disclosed to the appraiser, and I'll talk about why that's important in a minute. Now, all they're doing here is saying, you know, when you do this appraisal, here's what happens. You know, we have two prices that we may be dealing with, or two values. First of all, there may be something called a sales price. So in other words, this sales price, so as an example, we may have where the real estate agent put the property on the market. The property uh, was uh, on the market for a while. There was a purchase offer. Finally, there was a negotiated deal, and they decided that they were going to sell the property for $180,000. So that's the sales price. That's what's been negotiated between the buyer and the seller as an agreed-upon price. The appraiser may very well go out there and appraise the property and say, you know what, I've gone out there, I've looked at that property, I've looked at a lot of comparable properties, and in reality, that property only appraises for $150,000. Now, you may say, well, why in the world would that ever happen? You know, that could happen for a number of reasons. It could happen because of the fact that the person that's buying the property for whatever reason, falls in love with that property. They really like it. There might be some sentimental reason. They may say, this is home. I really like the property. The other thing that may happen, as I've mentioned before, they could possibly be coming from another area, even in California, in which homes are priced a lot, are a lot more expensive. For example, if we have somebody that's coming from the Bay Area or the Los Angeles area up to Sacramento, and they walk into a house, they may think when they initially see it, they may see the price, and they may say, my goodness, this is really a deal. If I bought this house back where I'm coming from, it would cost me three or $400,000. This house is only selling for $300,000. This is really a good deal. What they don't realize is that there's a difference in the price of the market. Houses down there, you know, a, a, a three-bedroom, one-bath house in Los Angeles may sell, sell for $600,000. In the Bay Area, it may sell for $700,000. You get up to Sacramento, it may only sell for $250,000 or $300,000. So you not only have the physical area where it's located or, you know, the city or the community, but you also have the neighborhood to deal with. And so that's why maybe a buyer may put an offer in and agree to a price on knowing that the value of the property, they're actually paying more than what it's really worth. That's how that could happen. 
Uh, and many times in some of my other classes, I'll go use something called Realtor.com, and I'll show people. I'll go to different cities, like, for example, in Oklahoma City, uh, in uh, the state of Oklahoma. You can go down there and buy a house, for example, a, a three-bedroom, two-bath with a three-car garage, all built out of brick, probably pretty new for somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, $200,000. In Sacramento, you'd never find anything like that. You'd maybe find a one-bedroom house that was, uh, you know, 100 years old, built on mud sills or something for that much. So you, that's that's where that comes from. Anyway, so you may end up where you have a sales price and an appraised price. What has to happen when the lender makes the loan, they have to pick whichever is the lower figure. So what that means is, is in this case, the appraised value was 150, the sales price was 180. What has to happen is, is that the, the underwriter is going to pick the $150,000. That's the appraised price. Now, later on when we talk about this, and then what the lender is going to do is that if they're making a 80-20 loan to value loan, in other words, where the person's putting 20% down and they're going to finance 80%, the lender is going to take 80% of the $150,000, and what they're going to actually end up financing is $120,000. So a lot of times when you go out there and you think that uh, can an appraiser, if an appraiser comes up with a, say, for example, a higher price, say appraiser went out and they said, you know what, this house is really great. I've done all the comparables in the neighborhood, and the property is not worth what they're buying for. It's actually worth more. Again, what's going to happen is, is that the lender's always going to choose the lower value, not going to go to the higher value, okay? Um, after that, we talk about the various three approaches that we use. Appraisers typically use three approaches when they're appraising real property. The first one they use, it says appraisers use three approaches to determine the value of residential property. Uh, these are market approach the cost approach, and the income approach. Uh, while all three approaches are utilized, the market approach is generally given the most weight by residential appraisers. That's usually the one that they use for most properties. Okay. And going on from here, um, the, let me just talk a little bit about the uh, market approach, if you will. Uh, basically, what's happening is uh, I will kind of walk you through the process of what they basically do. What will happen is that the, uh, that the uh, lender typically has somebody that comes into the office and they put in a loan application to buy a house, or maybe they put in a loan application to refinance a house. So after they do that, what will happen is after that, uh, you know, the loan officer has taken that application, maybe they've run a credit check, they've given a list of things that they want the uh, either the buyer to get or if they're going to refinance the person that's going to borrow the money to get, you know, such as they may say, oh, by the way, when you come back the next time, bring uh, your income tax statements, bring, the, you know, your pay stubs and all that. But what they may also, at that time, what they're going to do is after they've ordered a credit report and they look from what you're telling them that everything is okay and it looks like the loan's going to proceed, the next step or somewhere in there in the next set of steps that they're going to do is they're going to call an appraiser. And when they call the appraiser, they're just going to call up. They'll send them an email depending upon, you know, what kind of relationship with them. If they're doing business all the time, they may just send an email or fax it or whatever. But they'll give them the property address. And at the same time, if they have a copy of the contract, the purchase offer or whatever, they'll send that with them. What happens is, is the appraiser then turns around 
and before they even leave the office, they normally go on to the computer system, like the multiple listing system, which appraisers belong to, and they pull up comparable properties. What they do then, once they get these comparable properties, they have a list of those comparable properties. They know physically where they're located. They may take the time to plot them on a map, you know, so they know when they're driving out where they're physically located. And the properties that they're looking for is they're looking for properties typically in one of th- in three different categories if they're going to apply the market approach. The first category they're looking for is properties that have sold, properties that have not, not in the process of selling, but have actually closed escrow. And typically they're looking at those properties that have closed escrow usually in the last 12 months, normally in the last 12 months. That gives them a good idea as to, you know, what uh, the, you know, what other people that are in the marketplace have been willing to buy these properties for. So that they'll look at that. The second thing that they'll look at, which is mainly just information only, is they'll look at something called uh, properties that are listed for sale in the neighborhood. Now, not that they're going to use those, but that gives you another piece of information. They understand that when uh, anybody puts a property on the market for sale, they're probably going to ask more than what they're willing to take. And the idea is is that most people out of selling the property say, you know what, I really want maybe $350,000 for this house when I sell it, but you know what, I know that the buyer's going to chew me down anyway. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to price it at $370,000. So I'm going to have some room for negotiations. Now, the, the, the uh, appraiser may very well look at that and just look at that as just general information. So they know what kind of activities on the market, what's being listed for sale. Uh, that may also help them to identify other agents, real estate agents that are in the community that maybe have some houses for sale and that they could call them and find out some additional information, if you will. Okay. Another thing, type of property that they may, may very well look at will be things called expired listings. And, again, this is not what they're going to use to resolve their final figure, but they may very well be utilizing these to depend upon figuring out, for example, well, this property was on the market for 90 days and it didn't sell. And so what they may very well do is end up calling, you know, the broker or the agent and say, you know, what happened? You know, why didn't it sell? And they may say, well, you know, the house may look okay outside, but it's just, you know, it needs paint and carpet and windows and stuff on the inside. Okay, so they'll know what the circumstances happen to be. So what they're doing is they're looking for properties that are of comparable uh, value. Uh, so, uh, for example, you know, they may very well be looking at, hopefully what they'd be looking for is to find, if they're appraising a three-bedroom, two-bath with a two-car garage, hopefully there's a lot of those in the neighborhood. That's what the ideal situation would be. Um, going down from there... What I wanted to do was talking about how you identify these comparables. Uh, you're going to see this when you get it in the appraisal report. In fact, some of these appraisal reports nowadays, because we have computers, we can do a lot of stuff and make, make it look very elaborate. You know, so you may very well have photographs, maps, all kinds of stuff in this appraisal report because it's fairly easy to do now with computers. But Going down on identifying uh, legitimate comparables, it says, when utilizing the market approach, the appraiser must be certain that the sales used as a basis for comparison are, in fact, relevant in the areas that have the most impact of value. It goes on from there. It says, an appraiser will compare the properties and make a dollar adjustments for differences between them. Now, 
this is where it gets to be a little complicated, and you have to bear with me for a minute. It says adjustments, in other words, differences, making adjustments for differences between the property, like this property has a pool, this one doesn't have a pool. This one has a three-car garage, this one doesn't. So we're talking about making adjustments. So adjustments are always made to the comparable, never to the subject property. So in other words, when we make an adjustment, if we're using a property that has a pool, we don't add the value of that pool to our house, to the subject house. Okay, If the value of that house is lower because it's not in good condition, we don't make an adjustment to our house. We make it to the comparable. Okay, So we'll go on from here. It says... Um, if a compare, and it gives you an example. It says, if a comparable sale has a feature that is superior, uh, its sale price will be adjusted downwards. So what that means is, if your compare, if your house that you're appraising does not have a swimming pool, but the comparable price house does have a swimming pool, and that's a, a feature that people would want, what you're going to do is take the value of that swimming pool away from the comparable property. You're not going to add it to your property. You're going to take it away to make so now so now you're looking at the two houses as if they both neither one had a swimming pool. That's the idea behind it. Or neither one had a fireplace. Okay? If the comparable is inferior, meaning there's something wrong with it, it doesn't have something. If it's inferior in some aspect when um, when compared, let me pull this up. When compared, when compared to the subject or the subject property, it will have its sale price adjusted upwards. So, for example, if your house has a swimming pool and the other house does not, the one you're using as a comparable does not have a swimming pool, you're going to take and make the adjustment to the other house, the comparable, by adding the value of that pool or adding the value of the garage. It seems a little bit funny or a little bit awkward, but that's the way the adjustments are made. Okay. Obviously, the most comparable properties will require the least amount of adjustments, which is true. You know, So in other words, if you have two properties that are the same model by the same builder on the same side of the street, it's not going to take as many adjustments as trying to compare one that's on the next street or one that has a lot of amenities that your property doesn't have. Okay. When evaluating the sale, uh, to see if, the, if it qualifies as a, a legitimate uh, comparable, the appraiser is concerned with the following five issues, okay? And so we want to talk a little bit about this. The first thing that we want to do is take a look at the, sa the sale date of the comparable property. In other words, how recently has that property sold? Is that something that sold in the last month, two months, three months, six months, year? How long ago did it sell? And, uh, you know, we may very well find that there's periods of time when we're doing appraisals that we go out and there's been lots of sales, lots of activity, and we have lots of comp comparables. We may have a time right now where the market has slowed down, interest rates have gone up, and what's going to happen is the appraiser goes out and finds out there are not as many comparables. Or you may find out that you're in a neighborhood that's a fairly, we have neighborhoods in Sacramento, for example, that are extremely stable. People move into those neighborhoods, they live there, and I think they buy the house when they get married and they never move. <laughs> They're very stable neighborhoods. So you may find it's difficult to find a comparable house in that neighborhood. Okay, but we're looking at the date of the sale. 
We don't want to be using something that's three years old for today. The second thing is the location of the property. Okay, We should be looking at properties that are in the same neighborhood. Same neighborhood. And keep in mind neighborhood, which is really an economic term, you have to look at, you know, we're talking about, when we're talking about neighborhood, we're talking about areas where we tend to have homogeneous uses of property. So, for example, as I've mentioned before, if you go out to like an H.C. Elliott community or Dunmore community, these are builders in this in Sacramento area, you go into that community, you may find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homes in that community that go in all different directions from a number of miles that they're all the same or they're fairly similar in nature. And when we look at similar in nature, we talk about maybe the sizes of the houses, the shapes of the houses, you know, whether they have views or don't have views, you know, that they're pretty much in the same school district type thing, that the economic level of the people that buy the homes is fairly similar in nature, okay? That's fairly homogeneous. That would be a neighborhood. We could have that go on for a long period. You know, we could drive for miles before that would ever change. Conversely, and I've mentioned this before, we could go into an area like downtown Sacramento, which along the 40th Street area has an area we call the fabulous 40s. Those houses in that area on that street are probably worth well over a million dollars or several million dollars. They're the, uh, as I would say at one time, they're the old leave it to beaver type homes. I mean, they're just really beautiful looking homes, great big oak trees, tree line trees, nice sidewalks, really nice place to live. And because they're close, they're close to Sacramento, look close in commuting distance, a lot of people like them and they're very high, highly desirable area. But if we stay on that street and continue to drive, you know, starting say for example on, uh, uh, what we call Capitol Avenue or M Street, and continue to drive north and go through the streets, and we go, you know, down the, the level. You know, we go to, you know, the uh, L's, and then uh, and then the um, going backwards. You know, the J's and the H's and and the F's and the C's, and continue to go down all the way to A. We start to see the neighborhood changes. The houses get smaller. Okay, where that change takes effect, that's a re- in reality a different neighborhood. It's different types of properties. You know, all on the same street, but what happens is as you go in one direction, they start, all of a sudden they get small. And the ones that are smaller in one neighborhood and the ones that are big and, and very uh, pretty and have a lot of square feet, they're in a different neighborhood. And sometimes it becomes difficult to say, where did the neighborhood change? You know, usually you have some transition homes in between. You know, uh, you'll have re- really big homes, then some sort of like medium homes, and then some really tiny homes. Okay, so, you know, all on one street, all within probably, I don't know, maybe a mile, mile and a half distance. Okay, so you want to know what the neighborhood is. You want to make sure that you're looking at the same neighborhood. Next thing is physical characteristics. Okay, um, you know, what does the property have? What kind of condition is it in? You know, you know, is it built a similar nature? Is it brick or not brick? What kind of siding does it have? What kind of roofing does it have? How old is it? Um, you know, all those kinds of things we want to take a look at. The next thing is, is, and this is becoming more important, and that's why the appraiser really needs to see the uh, purchase offer is the terms of the sale. You could very well have, for example, two houses that sit next to each other, and uh, you may find, and they may be exactly identical. But the reason why one house is going to sell for more than the other one is because maybe the one that's going to sell for more the owner may be adding some things in to try to sell the house. They may be willing to help with the financing. 
You know, they may be willing to either carry a loan for their equity or they may be willing to pay the points or they may be willing to buy, uh, you know, as simple as a home warranty plan for the buyer. Uh, they may be willing to, uh, you know, upgrade the furnace, paint the house, all those things. That's why the appraiser needs to know what are the terms of the sale. If you have one house that the seller is really willing to do all that to sell it and the other house the owner is not, the reason what makes the difference is the terms of the sale. You know, if a buyer sitting there looking at both houses, they're both identical, says, my goodness, this guy is really willing to do a lot for me, and this guy's not going to do anything. I'll buy this house. Okay? And the, 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 uh, the last thing they talk in here is, is the property that when it's been sold at an arm's length transaction, arm's length. And I'll read a little bit about what this is. It says, before a sale can be relied upon as an indication of what the subject property is worth, it must be at an arm's length transaction. And what it says is this means the buyer and the seller are both well informed under no pressure to either buy or sell and that the property is offered for a reasonable period of time on the open market. Okay? So, for example, if somebody, if somebody needs to sell the property because, uh, desperately, because of the fact that uh, maybe um, the, their husband or their wife died and they can't financially any longer afford the payments, and if they don't do something right away, they're going to end up losing the property, that might be some pressure. Uh, it also could be under pressure where they're forced, you know, literally f getting forced to do a job change, or maybe they've lost their job, or something like that has happened, okay? That would be something that would put them under pressure to actually turn around and have to sell, Okay. Uh, they go on from there and they say distressed sales, REO, REO means real estate owned, by the way. REO sale, bank sales and trust sales are not considered to be an arm's length transaction. REO sales, what we mean by REO is, is that when the property is taken back in the form of a, either a foreclosure or in the form of what we call a short sale, and what a short sale is, is uh, I'm sorry, not a short sale, but in the form of a foreclosure. In other words, the bank has ended up with the property either because they've had to go through the foreclosure process or because of the fact that maybe the owner has given them like a deed in lieu of foreclosure and just said, take the property back, one or the other. What ends up happening is, is that uh, when those banks own those properties, they may very well get to a point and say, listen, it's costing me a fortune to hold on to these properties. You know, I'm not only ha not getting the income right now from, you know, from the from the money that I lent this guy. I'm also having to pay the taxes. I'm also having to pay the insurance. And in addition to that, I'm having to pay for a gardener. I'm having to pay for a pool cleaning guy. I'm having to pay, you know, on and on and on what needs to be done. And they may eventually get to the point and say, we need to sell these properties. You know, it's costing us another five, $600 a month just to hold on to this property. They may do some math and say, listen, let's just drop the price and get rid of it, you know, because this is going to go on for a long period of time. So there, the bank itself is under some kind of duress to finally get rid of it, okay? Uh, same thing if, if there's been a sale, at, you know, at the trustee sale, you know, where uh, you can't use those sales, you know, where you say, well, you know, the buyer of the property was Pat Hogarty, and he bought, he paid this much out of trustee sale. Because remember that that trustee sale is just going to be, the, the, the initial bid is just going to be for what's owed against the property. Normally, what's owed against the property plus any kinds of fees or expenses. So you want to look at it. You're really looking at normal sales as comparables to the property.
And another, one more thing, when I think I think about arm's length transaction, is that the sale happened between, if you will, sort of like two opposing parties. It wasn't between a father and son or a mother and daughter. Okay, it was between two individuals, because typically, if you use a sale that's between, say, relatives, especially if it's between parents and children, the parents may very well say, you know what, I want Johnny to have the house. I'm going to sell him the house. You know, and they want to help the kid get started. So they may very well sell the house for a lower price than they would sell out on the open market. That's not a sale that you can use. Okay. Uh, the next approach is something called the cost approach. Again, we typically try to utilize the market approach, but there may be times that we have to use the cost approach. So it says the cost approach is based on the presumption that the buyers will not pay more for an older property than it costs to purchase a newly constructed residence at the site. Okay, so that's what we're looking for. We're saying there's going to be a point where the buyer of the property is going to just say, you know, this is silly. Why would I ever want to pay this for this house? Why don't I just buy the lot next door and build a brand new house? Okay, that's that's the kind of concept that you're dealing with. Now, let me see if I can get this uh, figured out. Uh, okay, here we go. When you do the cost approach, it's basically it's a three-step process. Up here, it says in the cost approach, this is what we do. First of all, we estimate the cost of replacing the house with a new home that is similar to the existing one, utilizing the information from a cost handbook. What I'm talking about is that if this house that we're going to do this appraisal on is 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 a single story, it's got stucco siding, it's got a tile roof, it's got three bedrooms, two baths, two car garage. That's what we're going to replace it with. We don't figure out. We don't go in there and say, oh, now that we're going to you know we're going to knock the house down and build a new one, let's make it a four bedroom, three bath, four car garage. No, we're talking about the same similar house. The other thing that we're utilizing, too, is it says the information contained in the cost handbook. That's, this is the cost handbook that the realtors use. There's a copy of this in your book. Um, what this is is that this is the Marshall Swift system. They have it both for residential and commercial. The concept behind it is the fact that uh, this service collects all of this construction information all over the country. The book is laid out so that you go in there and you identify the kind of property that you're looking to appraise. So it'll have pictures of brick buildings and pictures of, you know, houses with wood siding. And, you know, you're looking for the kind of construction you're going to build. And it's going to give you a per square foot cost of construction. So it'll say, for example, that kind of a house, to build that kind of a house, is going to cost $150 a square foot. Then what the appraiser has done is they've gone out and they've measured the house. They know the size of the house. And in its most simplistic state, state now, again, this is an advanced topic in real estate appraisal, but in the most simplistic state, what will happen is they'll take the number of square feet times whatever that cost is per square foot, and they'll say that's the cost to build that physical house. Okay, that's what they'll do. The second step that they're going to do is they're going to estimate and deduct accrued depreciation from all sources. Now, what depreciation means is that we're talking about things such as uh, we're talking about basically, if I remember correctly, there's three different types of depreciation. I'm not sure whether it's on this page or not. Yeah, I'll talk about, yeah. The three types of depreciation that you'd be looking at taking away would be number one, would be physical, okay? 
So physical means that, you know, the house, if you, you know, is, is like 25 years old, the roof's worn out, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be corrected. So physical means things have sort of kind of worn themselves out. You know, it needs to be painted, you know, the dishwasher doesn't quite work well anymore, that kind of a thing. That's physical uh, depreciation. The second one, as they point out here, is called obsolescence. An obsolescence is, uh, physical, uh, is physical obsolescence to me means that things become obsolete. Obsolete, if, if you think about it, obsolete are things that used to perform a certain function and don't work like that anymore. Okay? Like a tool. I used to use a tool, a drill, or I used to use a, ha a certain kind of a tool to do a job and it's become obsolete. Or I have a black and white TV in the house and it's obsolete. Okay, or I have a radio in the house and it can't even pick the radio stations. It's obsolete. Obsolescence in a house typically means that I would have, for example, a lot of the insides of the house, the kitchen, the bathrooms, all of that stuff, although in good condition, although it functions well, is just obsolete. You know, it's got an old stove, an old refrigerator, it's got an old dishwasher if it has one, an old garbage disposal, and also things such as it's a four-bedroom house with one bathroom. You know, you have four bedrooms where people could live in, but you have one bathroom in the house. That's phys physical obsolescence, if you will. Uh, or I have a house that has a one-car garage. That would be physical obsolescence. Another thing to me, physical obsolescence, like there was a lot of houses built in Sacramento that didn't have central air conditioning or central heating in them. They had wall furnaces. You had to go around the house and light up the individual wall furnaces in the hallway and in a couple of the rooms in order to get the house warm. That's physical obsolescence because what it should really have is, you know, central heating and central air conditioning. So physical obsolescence. The third thing, and both of those can be fixed, though. They both can be corrected. In other words, I can put a new roof on the house. I can paint the house. I can change the siding. I can put stucco on there. I can redo the pool. There's a lot of things that if it's physically wrong, I can do. I can fix it. If it's physical obsolescence, uh, functional obsolescence, I can also fix that. So if it's got an old dishwasher, an old stove, an old range, an old heating system, I can physically fix that. I can. I can do that. That, in fact, in a lot of cases, you see places. I've seen this a lot, like in Land Park and some of the older communities that are really nice communities where you'll get a young couple who'll go in there and tear out the entire kitchen and replace the whole kitchen with all up-to-date appliances. Okay, so that, but that can be fixed. Okay? The thing that can't be fixed is the economic obsolescence. Economic obsolescence has to do with the fact that you have other factors in the community that are affecting the value of your property. A good example of economic obsolescence would be is drive down some of these neighborhoods that are uh, maybe considered to be a little bit, you know, maybe a high crime area. Maybe the area is not in very good condition. And you'll drive through the community and inevitably you'll see houses that are kind of, you know, like maybe boarded up. Some windows are broken, you know, trees fell over on them. There's garbage in the front yard. There's streets, on, you know, cars in the, in the street. And then you'll see that one or two houses in the neighborhood that are just beautiful. You know, they got a fresh paint job. The lawn looks beautiful. I've seen this in North Sacramento, South. I've seen it all over the place. But this one house or these couple houses are beautiful. You know, they got little flowers around the house, beautiful, uh, beautiful lawn. You can tell it's well maintained. There's no brown spots. Everything glistens. And the problem is, 
is that the community that surrounds that property has a dramatic effect on the value of that one nice house. And that's something that the owner of that house can't fix. The only way the owner could fix that is they'd have to buy the entire neighborhood. You know, uh, Another thing that would affect it is things like all of a sudden people physically are moving out of the community because of job losses. You know, you as an owner can't fix that. That's an economic cost. Uh, another thing that may happen, and this is why you hear a lot of people rile up against this, is, for example, when you put in things like an airport, people will say, I lived out here all my life. It's been a really nice place. Now you want to put an airport and all that noise is going to go right over the top of my house. And, you know, that's something you as an owner can't control. Freeways going in or another one. Uh, when they were putting in Highway 50 in Sacramento, at one time you could not, there was no such thing as a Highway 50 as we understood it today that goes through Rancho Cordova. What you had to do is you had to take Folsom Boulevard all the way through. When they put in Highway 50, anybody that had houses that butted up against that new freeway now ended up picking up noise. Okay, that's something the owner can't do. That's an economic effect. They can't fix that. So that's another factor that an appraiser is going to look at is, is there anything in the community that's affecting this property, anything that, that, that can? And we've categorized them into those three categories. Okay, so once we've done the depreciation part, the last thing that we have to do is we have to turn around and add the value of the lot, the land itself. So that means that we need to find some comparable lots or land that's sold in the area, and we have to add that back in. So here's the steps. We take the house. We figure out the square feet. We take a look at what the construction, how it's built. Step two, we go to the Marshall Swift book. We find a price in there based on the type of construction. That tells us what it costs to buy it brand new. Step three, we take a look at the existing house and say, you know, it has this kinds of physical obsolescence, this type of functional obsolescence, or this type of economic obsolescence, and we did take that value away from that house if we built it brand new. That now tells us what the house is worth today, the way it stands. Then what we do is we add the land back into it, and that comes up with the appraised value of the house. Okay? Now, um, so we've covered that. Okay. The last approach that we utilize is something called the income approach. Income approach is very, very rarely ever used in uh, residential property, and the main reason why is because the people that are buying this house are using it to live in with their families. Okay. If the house, on the other hand, is going to be, as an example, let's say that the house that you're, that you're going to borrow the money against, all the, most of the houses in the neighborhood are using it for families to live in, and this person wants to take and refinance this house, with, and, and, and it's a currently a rental. Maybe it became a rental because they moved out of the community. You know, they had to move out of town. They couldn't sell it at the time. They have a lot of equity in it. And now what they have is they want to borrow money against it. What has to happen is, is that that, own, that appraiser is going to look at the other houses that are in the neighborhood that have been sold based on the fact that people that are moving in are going to live there. And then they'll also take an, a, a look at another indicator is what could you get for rent. And the reason why they're going to do that is because of the fact that maybe the person that's getting a loan on this property, like I've done many times in the past, is using the money uh, is borrowing money against property that I'm renting out. I'm not physically living in. So the underwriter 
or the lender is probably going to want to know, well, what kind of rent could you get on this? Okay, what could you rent it for? Because they're concerned because that's maybe the way that the loan's going to get paid back. Okay? So anyway, they give you an example of something called the gross rent multiplier. This is a very, very simple thing to do. Basically, all you really do is you come up, you take a look and find three properties that are being sold, three or more, but three they say. You divide that by whatever... Uh, or t- you divide that by whatever the monthly rent is, okay? And that gives you a factor. In this case, it happens to be 111. So what that basically means is it tells you what that property is worth based on the income that will be derived from the property. Okay, pretty straightforward. Um, they do spend quite a bit of time um, talking about a realistic thing that happens, and that is that the appraiser goes out there and does an appraisal on the property, and what ends up happening is the appraisal does not meet either the owner's expectations that are trying to buy it or the lender's. What does that mean? It means that, you know, for example, I wanted to, I wanted to buy the house for $300,000, but it didn't appraise for $300,000. It appraised for two hundred and seventy. I wanted to borrow money against the house. I told the lender it was worth $300,000, and now the appraiser is coming back and telling me it's worth two hundred and seventy. Okay, So in other words, you've got a disparity there. So the issue here is how do you keep, how do you deal with that? If you're the lender, how do you deal with that if you're the real estate agent? So what it does is it says, this is how this could be handled. Some of this is not palatable. Number one is if you get the report back, one of the things that you may have to do is if that happens to be the only buyer you have is, is that if you're the seller, you may have to reduce your sales price. Okay, That's even after the deal has gone through. You may say, you know what, this is the only offer I've had in this house for three months. This person came in and agreed to buy this house you know, for, for, for that amount of money, for $300,000. But what they did is they came from out of the community. They came from Los Angeles, and they, they thought they were getting a deal. You know, The appraiser appraised it, and it didn't appraise for that. Okay, so that could be one thing. So you may have to reduce the price. Number two, you may have to keep the price where it stands and have the buyer make up the difference. So you may say to the buyer, you know what, we're going to keep the price the same, but you know what, you're going to probably have to have Uncle Joe or Uncle Harry help <laughs> help you with some gift money to buy the house. That's another way you can handle it. Number three is you can strike a compromise between the buyer and seller. You're saying, you know what, the appraiser did the appraisal. I've looked at the data that the appraisal appraiser has, and you know what? It doesn't come out. All the comparables indicate the fact that the property is not worth what they say it is. So you may find that the buyer and the seller is going to have to renegotiate that. Okay. Number four, you're going to ask the appraiser to reconsider the appraised value. This is getting into dangerous territory because what you're really doing is you're saying to the appraiser, by the way, I got the appraisal back from you, and it appears to me that maybe you haven't done your job correctly. Okay. And so you're already starting off on a bad foot. The thing is, is that if you're going to ask the appraiser to change something, you're going to have to justify to the appraiser why he or she needs to change that price. So it can be, for example, maybe there was a comparable that they used or a comparable out there that they were not aware of. Or maybe a comparable that they didn't under quite understand. So you're really trying to go back out there and say, Mr. or Ms. Appraiser, 
there's some additional data here. Would you mind taking a look at it? Okay. And if at all possible, if there was a mistake made, they are willing to take a look at that. Okay. But they're not going to just make a change because you happen to say the house down the street sold for more money. That's not going to happen. Okay. And the last thing that may happen as a result of that appraisal is you terminate the sale. Just say, you know what? The property didn't appraise for that. We're going to terminate the sale. All right. Um, you know, probably in here, I think the one thing that's really important to know is, is it says what, you know, what causes these low appraisals or appear to be low appraisals? And it goes on and says, of course, the best way to eliminate these problems created by low appraisals is to avoid them by, by in the first place, placing, by place, uh, in the first place, by pricing the properties realistically. That's why when you're a real estate agent or a real estate broker, why when you go in to help a client set a price, why you want to go in there with the data that you have in your multiple listing system and you want to sit down there and seriously talk about what that price should be. The owner may not want to hear that. You know, uh, the owner may very well turn around and say, my house is the best house in the neighborhood. My house should sell for more. But the thing is, you need to let the person know, because if you set the expectations high, in any case, what's going to happen too high, the house is, number one, not going to sell. Okay, so you need to make sure that you are helping that owner set a realistic price. And in reality, in order to do that, you're using a lot of those comparable sales that the real estate appraiser is using. So if you've done that correctly, and when the appraiser comes out, they're going to be looking at sort of similar data that you've been using, and they're going to say, yes, that is probably what it should sell for. So starting out in the beginning, trying to set it up correctly is important. Um, just going to go here. They give you a little example. If you were ever going to ask for a reappraisal or a reconsideration, in the book, they just show you here where you would have a nice cover letter explaining, you know, that you thought that maybe there was a problem. You need to justify this, not with a bunch of baloney. You need to actually come up with the values. You need to show here where the other properties that you believe justify this value. Essentially, you're trying to do your own little appraisal to justify where the appraiser may be possibly wrong. And then finally, if you have any other additional data, you need to include that. Okay? That's why I constantly say that if you're, not that you're trying to change the appraiser's mind, but if you are a real estate agent, you need to be out there when they're appraising the property. Because if you believe that there are some kind of characteristics, something that makes that property better than the other properties in the neighborhood, some other feature or something like that that you've done, you need to let the appraiser know about that. Now, it may have an effect on the value, and it may not, but you at least need to be there. Okay. Finally, what they do is they go through and they give you a whole bunch of keys or reasons or things that an appraiser considers when they're appraising a property. Okay. Some of the things that they talk about are things such as where is its physical location and how, what is the neighborhood like? Second thing, is it owner-occupied? Not only is the house owner-occupied, but is the neighborhood owner-occupied? Or is it a high rental area? Another one is vacancies. You know, is there a lot of property that's vacant in the area or is it well-maintained, well-groomed, everything looks really nice, everybody lives in the neighborhood and the houses look really nice, or is there a lot of vacancies? If you're looking at uh, 
rents to help it out is what are the rents in the area? You know, are they going up? Are they going down? What's happening in the rental area of the community? A uh, couple other things that they mention is things like construction activity. What kinds of activity? Are they building new houses in the area? Is the neighborhood getting better? Conformity is another one, and I could go on forever about this conformity. You can take, if your house happens to be a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,800-square-foot house in a neighborhood, and you move to that community and turn around <clears throat> and build a house that's 3,000 square feet, it's not going to get the same push in value as if you had built that house in a community in which 3,000-square-foot houses are located. So you want to make sure that you're not overbuilding or underbuilding for the house. Uh, you want to look for things like changes in land use. You know, is the house, is the property going to be, you know, as I mentioned many times before, you can have a neighborhood that for whatever reason, especially along a busy thoroughfare, like a Watt Avenue, a Howe Avenue, a Marconi Avenue, those areas that those houses that possibly there's a change, they're now going from residential to where they're using them for doctor's offices, bookkeeping, attorney's offices, things like that. Is there a change in the use of the property one way or the other? Size and shape of lots, you know, are they, you know, we talked about that before, you know, that there are certain kinds of lots. Is it a small lot, a big lot? Is it in a cul-de-sac? What kind of a lot is it? Uh, contour of land. This is another thing, too. You can have a piece of property where somebody says, I have five acres, and everything is on a hill. <laughs> the, the usable property that you have is maybe just big enough to put your house on. And I, I can show, I could show you houses where you don't even really have a large enough pad to put the house on. They actually put them on stilts. I've seen it in El Dorado County. I've seen it in Placer County. So you want to be aware of that. Uh, street patterns, utilities. What kinds of utilities do you have? You know, very, very important. Do you have, do you have things like natural gas, public sewer, public water, things like that? Or you have a well? You know, do you have cable TV? Do you have telephone? All those things are important. So anyway, there's a list of items that are here in the book uh, that I think are very, very important that you're aware of that an appraiser takes into consideration when they're appraising the property. Okay, views, for example, if you have a view of, you know, a Folsom Lake and the city lights, that may go for substantially more than the one that has a view that doesn't have that view all on the same street. So again, this is very, very important. Uh, we're really close to the end right now. I want to thank you very much for watching. We have one more show to go, and we'll see you back here the next time. With that, have a nice day. Bye-bye.